Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street continues to partner with organisations across Australia and the globe to train leaders, develop engagement strategies and empower people to organise in their own communities. And in 2020, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to make a difference, inspire, give hope and build communities from the ground up. So if you want to find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly center-left political and cultural podcast that dives into the progressive issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And on this week's episode, we're joined by Molly Wilmot, who is the National Union of Students President. Um, And as a former student hack myself, um, I cannot believe in all the years I've been doing political podcasts that I've never ever interviewed uh, the president of NUS. And today I'm going to, and I'm really excited by it, and I sort of put out the call to a whole bunch of former uh, student politics uh, hacks and said, I'm interviewing an NUS president today. Give me your question. So we're going to have a bit of a chat towards the end about some more of the trivial, banal, insider, inside the beltway kind of conversations about student politics and NUS conference and stuff. But at the start, it's going to be a bit more about sort of policy and get to know about Molly a little bit better as well. So looking forward to uh, today's episode. But before we do, don't forget to Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and leave us a review. And for all the updates, follow us on Dunstreet on our socials, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And obviously, there's a lot going on over in the United States at the moment uh, with all the protests uh, across all the towns and cities in all 50 states of the United States. And I'm sure we're all looking on um, in... Um, sort of disbelief and horror and helplessness and all the other different sort of feelings that um, that uh, progressives and centre-left people would uh, feel about this. Um, if you do want to do something, uh, there are, it's not necessarily easy for people outside, so non-US residents, to donate to um, organisations in the United States, particularly the ones that are PACs because of their campaign finance laws. Um, however, and I'm going to put this up on the Instagram uh, account and uh, on Facebook on the Dunn Street Instagram and Dunn Street Facebook account um, later today. That's we're taping this one on Friday um, with links to donate to an organisation called Colour of Change. Um, they're one. Of, they're, I think they are the largest online uh, racial justice organisation um, in the in the United States. Um, I personally have had dealings with some of the people that work at Colour of Change throughout the years. Um, uh, some of the guys in their former jobs when they worked for the sort of former Obama organisers and whatnot have come out to Australia and uh, worked with some of our organisers in developing their skills um, and obviously we've sort of maintained those connections with some of those great people who now are working for Colour of Change. Um, the Dunn Street US Engagement Mission um, spent an afternoon at Colour of Change at their DC offices and we did some training on organising and leadership development um, with their sort of their field team, really inspiring people, a really great organisation, um, and you can Australian citizens can donate to Colour of Change. I think their website is colourofchange.org, um, and their main donation page there. There's other pages you can donate to, but their main donation page will take donations from Australia. Um, so I encourage you to do that. The money raised from that goes to, in particular, um, speaking to some of the guys during the week, they're focusing on their campaigns for uh, the upcoming um, presidential election campaign, but in particular the down-ballot races in electing 
um, what they call champion prosecutors, so prosecutors that are, are actually going to make real change um, in prosecuting uh, police um, when they are, um, you know, basically bad cops, racist cops. Um, and it's one of the key areas that climate change are focusing on, as well as obviously seeking justice for for Floyd and for Bree um, and for you know so many other African American uh, men and women that have been the victim of police brutality. So, if you do want to help, that's one way you can do that is obviously make a donation to Colorado Change. Also, if you want to do some things on the home front as well, um, we're also going to put up some posts about some um, Aboriginal, Indigenous, and Torres Strait Islander um, organisations that. Um, definitely need um, your support in both either your, your feet, your voice, or your funds. So we're going to post some links on our Instagram and our Facebook page um, later today as well. Okay, so here's some good things that you can do. If you can't physically get over there because, of, because we can't jump on planes, you can send your money and certainly you can do more at home to support our Indigenous brothers and sisters. Um, so we'll put some links for you to, the, to there. But... Let's get to today's episode. We're taping this one on a Friday afternoon uh, on a glorious winter's day in Melbourne. And joining me on the line is the president of the National Union of Students, Molly Wilmot. Molly, welcome to Socially Democratic. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Uh, look, I don't know exactly who listens to this podcast. Uh, I do know that about 20% of my audience, bizarrely enough, is from overseas, but I would hazard a guess that at least 50% of those that aren't from overseas, that are based in Australia, are ex-student politics hacks from the 1990s onwards. Uh, and I think that they'll be listening in more from a nostalgic perspective about their days in student politics to this particular episode, given your position within NUS. Um, so they're probably going to live vicariously through what you're up to at the moment in this podcast. So there's a little bit of pressure on me to make sure that I ask the right questions for you a bit in terms of your, uh, your work in student, in the student political movement at the moment. Um, so a nation turns its lonely eyes to you, Molly. Are you ready for this? Look, I'm fine. My entire year has been living through the nostalgia of previous hacks. So I'm, I'm very well versed <laughs> with it. I'm all good with it. <laughs> Uh, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. I think the one of the strengths of the student movement, certainly amongst uh, uh, particularly probably national office bearers, but even people who have had leadership positions within the student movement, is that they're very good at passing down the history of, uh, of our movement throughout the generations. So it's good to hear that, that tradition is continuing on. Yeah. No, it's, it, it's fine. I love, I love the stories. So... Right. It's my job. <laughs> well, I'll flag then. I apologise from the outset that by um, if I frame any of my questions with the back in my day, um, which I am going to do, unfortunately, uh, but I'll try to limit it to only about 30 questions. Um, <laughs> but let's, uh, let's dive in. Tell us a bit about yourself. How did you first get involved in, in, in student activism? Um, yes. Yeah, so I'm in my fifth year, uh, which is a lot longer than it's supposed to be, of a arts politics degree at Melbourne Uni. Um, I wasn't, like, going onto campus being like, well, I'm, I'm going to go become a student politician. I'm going to go be involved in politics. I, in year 12, um, my high school history teacher was teaching us the Russian Revolution. And I was like, wow, that's, like, like I don't completely, you know, vibe with everything that Lenin did in the revolution in Russia. Um, but she took the time to explain like left-wing politics and activism and grassroots movement growing. She's this like little Geordie woman uh, who I was obsessed with. Uh, and I walked on the campus being like, I want to go change the world. I want to go do something. 
Uh, and I sort of fell into the Student Union of Melbourne and things like women's activism uh, was where I really started. I used to be, uh, like, I started really at UMSU, which is the Student Union there, uh, as a women's officer and then and was president last year and now I'm the NUS president. And, like, throughout that time I realised that it's not just, you know, um, it's not just, like, I want to become a women's activist. I sort of realised how important education accessibility is for everyone and I, I, I think that's that's really what, what what's hit me about my politics is how important I think education is and how things like Centrelink Access, which is a lot of work that we do as well, how things like, you know, accessibility for people of colour, for disabled students it, is so important to our society of like building a better a better future. So it's sort of it's sort of been a growth thing over the past few years of like I came in with this very broad, like, I'm going to save the world and I'll come into, like, into the education space and I honestly I couldn't be happier. Uh, so that's where, that's where I'm at right now. That's how I really got involved. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like I have sort of fell into this, but it is fun. <laughs> I want to pick up on that sentence there because you, you said that twice now. You said you fell into this, the, the student union at uh, Melbourne University. How does one fall into it like what was those what were those initial first steps what was that moment where you decided that you wanted to go and most likely probably talk to a stranger and say hey how do I get involved in something um so when I started uni it was it was off the back it was a couple of years removed from um the deregulation protests uh in 2014 which were the um biggest student movement um, actions probably since the introduction of HEX uh, or the Iraq war. So we're coming off a lot of momentum as a movement and I was seeing, you know, actions on campus. I was seeing um, students who were, who were going out and just, and just talking to other students about what was important to them. And I just, you know, you make a friend who makes a friend mm. and you're like, they were like, hey, come to this women's collective, come to this education um, collective, come talk about um, this, this issue. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll come along. <laughs> uh, and it was sort of the, like, I didn't really know what was going on for a while, but I knew that, you know, UMSU and student unionism was important. I come from a union family. I come from, a like, a family who, who believes in collectivism. And when sort of those ideals of, like, you know, student union, unionism is, is the first step young people take towards, like, active collectivism, I was like, okay, this is it. This is, like, this is what I meant. It's, it's hard to explain how you fall into something like this. But it, it was sort of just like little steps along the way, going to more events, sort of getting a better idea. I also uh, like all cards on the table, a huge hack. So it was like I walked in and it was it was people were saying like acronyms and things like NUS or things like DREG and it would just be me Googling um, the history of the student union for hours and hours, um, just just seeing like huge things that we've done um, in the past. And I was like, oh, that's actually really cool. I, I sort of don't want to leave now. <laughs> um, you uh, you mentioned at the start there you, you, that you're um, finding it all a bit confusing at the start. When did things start to, when did the penny kind of drop for you where things started to make a little bit more sense? Oh, it's... <laughs> I think it was it was getting involved in NUS. I think it was like getting involved in the national movement. I think you know, coming from Melbourne Uni, we come from a very privileged position. Like like my background itself isn't necessarily privileged. Like it's a single a single income family. It was very it's it's inherently confusing to go onto a campus where your colleagues and your your classmates are incredibly affluent or like privileged to be able to to be there. Um, 
but I think it started making more sense when I got involved in the national because I saw that it wasn't just my campus, that it wasn't just my friends, that it wasn't just like, you know, around that time, um, the big campaigns that were running were against sexual assault on campus, which is an issue that, um, like, unfortunately, is still incredibly prevalent. It was the government um, was moving towards backdoor cuts to education or cuts to art schools. And when I saw that, like, this is something that a random person in Wollongong um, was really passionate about it as well, I was like, oh, okay, so this is this is it. This is what this is. Um, of course, it took me, like, three or four years to fully get all the acronyms and to get sort of the politicking of it. But, yeah, as soon as I, I got involved in that, like, it made sense. You um, obviously put your hand up and were successful in the election um, to the role as president of the National Union of Students. Um, what first motivated you to want to put your hand up for that position? Uh, it's So halfway through my term at UMSU, um, last year as president. Um, also, the, the previous president before me um, ended up tenured as president as well, so I was working really closely with her about what she was up to. Um, but, like, halfway through last year, I sort of had this this nagging budge that, it, I, I, what I, that, like, I hadn't done enough or that, like, I'd, you know, I'd, be really, I'd been really involved last year with some national stuff, but it was, like, the government has successively cut education for so long that I didn't feel like I could leave student politics happy or fulfilled if I hadn't started organising on a national level, especially against the federal government. Because when you're on a campus, you're caught up with a lot of, like, the vice-chancellor is doing this, we have to do this for students. Um, And I wanted to go more into the pure activism and advocacy uh, because I sort of, what a lot of people in the student movement, which is an issue in NUS, and, like, I'm not here to think that NUS is a perfect body, but a lot of students don't understand the connection that federal policy makes to, like, the contribution that makes to their campuses and to their students. So when we had students come to our advocacy service last year being like, I have no Centrelink, I can't access, like, I have to drop out of uni because of that, it was sort of those, like, nagging little little things. It was like, well, I want to go on a national level and try and fix this. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of that's sort of where that's at. Um, don't regret it yet, which is nice. It's like COVID, but, yeah. Um, uh, the... My experience in the times of I've been never ran as a national office bearer, but certainly helped uh, a lot of colleagues uh, of my generation get elected. And the nerve-wracking week of national conference when you are a candidate um, seeking national office can uh, take a toll on people mentally. I think was it a was it an easy process for you to get elected, or did you find that week quite nerve-wracking and you know knowing for well because you're not a part of the negotiations on behalf of your group, and so you're kind of left in the dark for most of the week until someone comes and says, "Okay, we uh, just use a cliche. We have the numbers now." Yeah, look it it wasn't the easiest. Um, it I, I think the, the fact that you know one of my best mates and was like the previous president at Amsu and now the previous president at NUS, it sort of gave me a lot of comfort of she was coming up to me and being like, it's fine if you feel like this. It, it's like very stressful. I think the main thing about NatCon and, and when I got elected is I really love a yell. I really love debate. I love speaking on, because like for, for those listening, national conferences are mixed between five days or four days of um, yelling and, and policy debate on really niche issues um, some, like most of the time, very important um, education platforms. 
I just, I sort of took all that stress in and fueled it into the lectern, to be honest. Uh, I had some great yells. Um, yeah, look, it's, it's not an easy time. Um, I, I'm quite excited about this year. Um, not really. Like, we have to organise the conference. I think it's going to be a very different perspective. Um, but, yeah, it's mine now. <laughs> well, I'm going to ask you about some challenges that you're going to face in 2020 because of all the years that you've been uh, to be elected president of uh, the National Union, uh, 2020 certainly has presented some challenges for uh, for you guys. But before we do that, just set the scene for me now. Try and bring me up to speed uh, to what sort of the, the the state of student organisations and associations uh, in 2020 because my entry into student politics was around the VSU or the voluntary, another acronym, voluntary student unionism debate here in Victoria and then eventually expanded at a national level with the election of the um, Howard government. Fast forward 21, 22 years later since that that campaign and that debate, financially what is the shape of student unions today? Where do they derive most of their income to support the work that they do yeah, so I think I speak for most student activists, if not all of us, when I say that the introduction of voluntary student unionism, which took away um, sort of the obligation to pay student unions fees, um, was one of, like, it gutted us. It absolutely gutted us. Um, we had a bunch of student unions fall. We had student unions amalgamate. We had student, like, you know, you look at student unions especially around, uh, around your time in uni, we were um, not only, like, doing the protests, we were running concerts, we were um, running clubs, we were running, like, the shop fronts at uni, we were getting our income from there. And the loss of membership gutted us so completely that we had to sell all our assets off, student unions fell, um, and it's still sort of a thorn in our side um, to, the how we, to how we work. Um, we, about seven years ago, the Gillard government, I believe, introduced the student services and amenities fee, which was like a like a compulsory um, fee that students would pay to the university, um, and and a negotiated amount will go to your student union. Um, so the issue with that is, and this is where student unions are right now, is that you have student unions who have negotiated a really good deal because that's most of our income. If you didn't keep your shop fronts, if you didn't keep your um, independent income. Um, and then you have student unions who get 1.5% of that entire payment and the rest is being paid and spent on the university for university projects or it goes to sport. Um, there are a bunch of campuses in the country where it's like the sporting programs and their gyms make 10 times more than the student union. Um, and I think, you know, when you're looking at how what the state of the student movement is right now, is it is because of that hit with VSU and how restricted our funding is. There's also rules about what we can do. Um, it's really not like there's a lot of issues where it's like sometimes student unions don't think they can go as as militant crazy as they, they probably should and could be doing because it's tied to it. Like we can't really go storm the vice chancellor's office because you could very well go no money for you and then be closed, which has taken away a lot of the a lot of the stories from the 70s 80s and 90s for the student movement which is really unfortunate and it's look it's something that we're we're like COVID threw a spanner in the works but it was something that we were going to be working on this year is sort of going to like state and federal governments and being like student unionism is important for these reasons can you give us like a mandatory minimum of the SAF payment so we can at least have a bit of flexibility to do our job 
because um, there's not really any other union like and this is like if you look at the wider movement there's no other union that is so financially tied to the people they're fighting against which is really unfortunate um but yeah yeah i mean that's certainly that's it just takes away that leverage that you can have um to a certain degree anyway um and uh, the original debate for us always was student control student affairs and when you have to go cap in hand to an organization or to the vice chancellor's office to get that funding that certainly does make it a lot harder um what uh in terms of membership recruitment then um because that was what our big concern was uh, back in the 90s was that if they brought in voluntary student unionism, then it would be up to the student associations to recruit members to join their student association, which at the time I kind of thought, well, okay, I'd much rather compulsory unionism, but I recognise, and also I was about to go and work for a trade union, so I knew that the world out there wasn't based on compulsory uh, conscription and uh, people had to make an argument to people about why they should pay their own hard earn dollars into an association. So if that was a life that we had to leave, then we needed to get smart about that. Um, is, that is that not the case anymore? Students or organisations don't need to actually get people to sign up to an organisation? It depends on the campus. Ah. Um, there's a lot of places where um, because their staff payment is so low, they have to charge a membership when there's a lot of recruiting. Um, there, there are, you know, universities that do like it's sort of equivalent to like the union shopper of like you get rewards or you get something if you join your union. Um, but yeah, union membership on student unions, um, depending on what they're doing, it can also be quite low. So you look at, you know, your, your less active student unions and their campus memberships, like one or 2000 for a campus of 10, Mm. um, which is still pretty good actually. But, um, you know, it's sort of like, it's that, it's that never ending struggle of like, how do we get more into the union? How do we get more people involved? Um, you know, credit to the campuses that do have to do that. Um, look, I've been pretty lucky in that we we still have all our services open towards like non-members and a lot of unions do just as a form of recruitment in itself, but also we can't close our doors on students who need it. So turning to contemporary uh, politics or student politics and the, and the broader student movement, I'm just interested in getting a sense uh, from you about what are the signature campaigns that is defining the work of the National Union students and the broader student movement right now, notwithstanding, obviously, the challenges that coronavirus has presented to you. And we'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. But what, do you, what, got, what were you guys up to before uh, our lives altered, altered dramatically? Yeah, so I think what we were up to before coronavirus has sort of been brought to the light a bit uh, in the public um, domain a bit by coronavirus is in the state of education right now is uh, what we were looking at was the corporatization of universities. And you know, when you look at successive decades of government cuts, we have the lowest funding of um, universities uh, in, like based on GDP um, in the developed world. We're having huge restructures. We're having universities go online. We're having universities close down. Um, that the state of universities has moved so far away from what it should be, which is, you know, academic, like I'm going to go um, change or like, I'm not even going to go change the world. I'm going to go learn about the world. I'm going to go learn about, um, you know, social social movements and social um, ideas. Um, and it's become a very transactional sort of process on, on campuses. So what we were doing was we were going to work with a, a bunch of other peak student bodies, like the graduate students and the international students and the, um, the NTU as well, about how we would change the higher education sector to be more compassionate, to be more empathetic, to be less transactional and less corporate. 
um, which in itself, because of how higher ed's going, is, is, is still happening, uh, but in a very different lens. Um, other than that, it was, I think you can't really look at youth movements, really look at students without talking about the climate movement. Um, so we were doing a bit of work last year and we, we did want to continue this, this year of working with, you know, the, the school strikers who are, who are now entering into uni um, to, you know, help with the movement um, towards combating climate change because I think that's my favourite thing about the student movement. It's not just on-campus issues. It's not just, um, you know, what you know what's happening on an education level. It's a sort of a, an obligation for us to be speaking about social social change. I mean, it was a student movement that pushed the fight against conscription. Um, it was a student movement that, you know, has been at every single anti-war protest um, or, you know, just we've, we've led the way for Indigenous rights or helped lead the way for that as well. Um, so that's sort of where we were at. There's, there was a couple other things, like, floating around of, like, this is also quite a big year for queer students with the um, Religious Exemptions Act and we are sort of seeing where we would fit together all these different things, as well as, you know, the, the rates of new start youth allowance for poverty levels and then, you know, X, Y, Z, and then Corona hit in March. So we had to do a pause on a lot of that stuff, but, you know, we're preparing to go back to it or at least modify it with the post-corona world. Since we're, we're what, uh, what did, we've all had to adapt in various ways because of um, the restrictions that were placed on how we all move and interact with each other. Has there been any innovation that's come out of the student movement in that period since March that um, will uh, change the way you organise or change the way that you interact with each other? Like, obviously, you can't go out, you couldn't go out and visit campuses, and I think it will be a while before you can actually get out to a campus. So, you are the head of a national organisation. You need to communicate with people. How have you guys adapted? Yeah, look, I think that's been the difficult thing of uh, this year isn't what I expected to walk into. I expected to be going around the country and talking to um, to students um, very directly. And I got to do a couple of weeks of that, which was nice. Um, but the way that we've adapted to it is, besides becoming very good at video conferencing, um, we've looked at the way that we organise online. It's things like, you know, communicate the student movement right now is so reliant on communications is so reliant on, you know, what we're sending out, what we're putting out, how we're doing it. Um, that like, I have absolute so much pride in, in so many unions who have been able to adapt to that. So it's, it's like, how do you escalate a petition? How do you escalate like a, like a, a change org? How do you push that into a, into organizing? And I think that's where you see these beautiful things of like, the, the cavalcades that, who, that are driving around campuses to um, fight for education quality or you see, you know, online rallies are a big thing right now and how we properly engaging people and doing calls to action and how we're using social media streams. So I think when we're back into being able to, to go out to rallies, when we're back being able to, like, actually go and meet and have those conversations, I think we're going to be a lot more well-versed on online organising, which is, you know, I think some people should be scared because I've seen some excellent com- like. Uh, graphics come out of this year so it's only going to get better um but yeah other than that it's like you know uh, if you go outside of of the activism we have campuses who are now live streaming events who are now um doing like food hampers who are now doing um those like real face-to-face advocacy work um online or or throughout um other socials so it's, it's sort of 
I think I think it's given us a lot more flexibility in how we can do things. You made a really interesting point before, which I want to pick up on now. Uh, that is that the student strike protest, um, f- all the, the the primary and high school students are now at the university age. That's incredible, and I think that uh, people who aren't even engaged in mainstream politics would have recognised that there are a lot of younger people who don't even uh, are not even of the voting age that were very active and motivated around this particular issue um, and consistently so as well, which wasn't just some sort of one-off fad. I think the ability to main, maintain and sustain their efforts has been quite remarkable. They're about to come into university how do you seek to embrace the successes that they've had with the work that you do? And I, I ask that question, and I, I want to have a follow-up in a moment, which is about the relevancy of student organisations in the face of the mainstream, broad student population. I'll ask you in a moment about the challenges with that. But let's talk first about these young kids coming through. How are you going to work with these guys? Look, I think the, the best thing about these young kids coming in is they're already incredibly angry. Um, a lot of and we'll talk about in a second, a lot of the issue is apathy when you walk into a campus um, that, you know, oh, my parents voted Liberal, my parents voted Labor, that's that's politics, don't really want to get involved in any, anything else, I just want to finish my degree. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the way that we've been able to engage with them is, is obviously campuses are doing a lot about uh, climate change and the climate movement. Um, it, it is very pertinent on campuses as well. Um, some of our campuses are huge investors or get huge donations from the big banks who, invo- who invest into to fossil fuels, who, like, we have Rio Tinto coming to clubs days um, or, or careers days. So I think there's a lot of action on, on, on the climate movement that can be done on a campus level. But, look, if you're angry about one thing, then you're more than likely angry about a broader systemic issue of the way the world is. Um, so it's a lot of, it's a lot of sitting down and having those conversations of like, so if you're angry about climate change, you're angry about this, like, shouldn't we have just a more sustainable education system to be able to like learn about renewables or like sort of have those conversations. And that's been a lot of what these kids coming in have been doing, but also these kids are looking for it when they walk in. What we noticed at the start of the year was these kids have come onto campus and they're looking for the student union environment department. They're looking for the student union ed- education department, which is, I uh, like, I've never seen it before. I've never really heard of it before, uh, besides a little bit in 2014 um, with DREG. So I think that's, it's been, it, it was quite good. It's, it's, I'm excited to see these kids who are now, you know, the main organisers are entering into uni in the next few years. So I'm excited to see what they do. Mm. One of the challenges that we had, I'm sure this has been the case, I think it was in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s as well, an internal debate within the movement uh, and sometimes it defined, I guess, the factional groupings within the student population was that uh, you spoke before about apathy amongst the student population um, and that the apathy somewhat undermined our arguments when we went in to lobby and... Um, uh, lobby politicians in Canberra, particularly around the VSU debate, because they were saying that you are not representative of the student body. Um, and look, we never solved that problem. Um, on most campuses, I think, I mean, it varied from campus to campus, but I can only you know, speak about my old, old campus, La Trobe Uni. I think 10, 10 to 15% of the, the student population voted in student elections. Um, and in terms of the participation in the kind of things that we were doing, it was quite minimal as well. 
um, we, you know, we found it difficult to reach out to students who, who are basically just there because they want to get their degree and they've got competing interests. They might have three part-time jobs to try and help pay for their university degree. Um, and, you know, they, they may be apathetic or might, we might call it apathy, but they may just see there's no sense of urgency that we're presenting to them. What have you found in your time in student politics that you've been where you've had success? You can point to successes where you may have started to break into that part of the student body where people are going, oh, yeah, that's something I can get around. Yeah. Um, I My time in student politics has been a bit hit and miss in terms of, of getting those that wider student engagement. I think, you know, going to the lobbying it's the most jarring moment of my time in student politics. So I walked into this meeting with the University of Melbourne uh, and I was like, I have 15 recommendations about how you can combat sexual violence because you're not doing anything. Um, these are like, we got advocates, we got people in the sector to go and fight this. And um, after some discussion, the response was, oh, but you only 900 people voted for you. So why should we listen to you? And I just cared about this so much and I felt so angry that it sort of lit this fire in me that I think probably has led me to the position I'm in now. Um, but I think the successes that I've had, um, and I've got two to link back to, is like, you know, uh, following following that meeting with the university, I just sort of went, uh, F yeah, I'm calling a rally. Um, and I got a rally together um, for an anniversary of a, of a survey that came out on the issue and we got 300 400 students out, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's, it's pretty good for just before exams, um, especially with the current student body. We were able to get colleges out. We were able to get, you know, a lot of support from the, the student body and it's it sort of scared the university and they sat down with us a week later and were like, okay, so we've considered some of the stuff that you brought to us. Um, so that was great and it was sort of like when you can, I think it's all about, again, communication of how you're communicating those issues and why they're important. How are you like, I think it goes into, you know, some of the principles of, of politics and lobbying on a, on a bigger level have to be brought into student unions of like who your networks, like we built really good networks. We built that really well. Um, the second one is, and the second aspect of it is campaigning on issues that really affect students. I think there's an issue with student unionism of it's like a lot of our wins come from reactive things it's hard it's really hard to make proactive change in the student movement um why why do you think that that is everyone why do you think that is i think i think it goes down to the ideological argument on things of like are we selling the ideological argument like you know you were saying before that it's like you know how do you how do you combat apathy but it's like are we actually going into the student body and being like here is why student representation is important. Like when we're being slammed online by liberals who don't necessarily like us, are we fighting them and being like, no, this is what's important? Like I think I, I, someone once told me that like before I started as president of UMSU, I was like, they were like, look, they don't have to like you, but there can be no excuse. They don't know what you're doing and they don't know that you exist. Um, so it's about, you know, talking to students about, that we actually exist and, and like having, you know, linking things like, you know, if, if a thousand students are going to your barbecues every week, do they know who's running the barbecues um, and stuff like that? It, it's, and, and because we haven't been doing that well, the making proactive change has been really difficult. It's also like a lot of the proactive change that the student movement wants to do is very like big brain. Like it's like, well, we want to change the entire way this thing is looked at. 
And it takes a lot of effort and a lot of like building support, a lot of like it, it would take generations of a student politician to make a change that they thought was very like important. Um, but when you're looking at reactive change, if, it, if it's something that's impacting students now and impacting the, the actual personal of the student, I think it goes into individualism as well. Well, of like my biggest success, I think, in student politics was like last year, um, my university put through special consideration changes, like really awful special consideration changes that would have meant the students would have dropped out of university because they couldn't sit their exams. And we were able, because that was affecting so many students individually, we got 3,000 survey responses in two days. We were able to like mount this huge campaign, that like huge public campaign. And now a huge amount of the student body knows who we are because of that. That's huge. I was walking around, yeah, I was walking around campus. I was in an Uber once and they turned around and was like, you're the young student president. You did the special consideration thing. And I was like, yeah, that was me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, but um, I, and I think that's the issue is the proactive reactive. Um, and it's it, when you touch those issues that students really care about, like, deeply then you sort of hit that apathy a little bit but I think yeah that's the that's concerning thing about student politics is and then any US itself is that you have years where you're doing the reactive changes where you're fighting against HEX when you're fighting against BSU when you're fighting against speed deregulation or in my case coronavirus where you're able to get just get this groundswell of support and then you don't keep the momentum up and then it's three years of of you're doing the work but it's not as public as you'd like it. Uh, interesting you said that we talk about fighting against HEX. That was always one of the bigger sort of issues that really divided the, the student movement was the position on HEX. It and, still is. Uh, and I'll, you know, I'll uh, put my uh, hat in the ring and say obviously I was from the, the student unity uh, uh, generation <laughs> of activists. Um, what's, the de- what's the debate on HEX right now? Like where is it? Where, I mean, originally it was you're either for it or you're against it. Have we, is it moved to more nuanced about in terms of how much it is, or is it still a kind of a free education versus a, a, a sort of a hex model where we expand the, the finance pool to make sure that more people can go to uni? What's the story? Where, where are we with that now? Uh, look, if you love the performance of student politics and the fighting, it's still very much a, a free ed versus hex um, debate because it's, you know, every year we have an education conference in the middle of the year, um, socialist alternative who are, Trotskyists will run a run a free education is best. Student unity, uh, who are you know, labour right, will run a hex is best, and it'll just cause hours of fighting. Um, but I think that a lot of more nuance has sort of been brought into the discussion, and I've heard a lot of of really good takes from either side in the past few years about it. And I think look, the hex system right now is is it's not what was introduced in the nineties. Uh, it is like you know if you're a manager at McDonald's, you are just under by about a thousand dollars the hex threshold now. When you know hex was introduced to you know target people under eighty thousand dollars a year, you've got a good job thanks to uni. Here you can pay your degree back. But when you have you know frontline emergency um, room nurses who aren't being paid very much, having to pay back their hex, having to support their families like single parents, then that then that's not working. Um, there's also hex caps of like, you know, you can't go and study more than a hundred thousand dollars of a degree now, which is, you know, if you're doing, you know, if you're, if you're like my, my mum who wants to go back and study like as much as possible and get as much different degrees, then you're sort of limited in what you can do. Um, so a lot of discussion on hex is now turns towards how bad is hex, but how do we fix that? And that's where the divergent divergence between like, 
free edit hex sort of becomes a bit money because I've got people who believe in hex who are saying to me that anywhere should be fighting for free education because that sort of moves the political window towards a better hex system. Hmm. And when, like, you know, if we go to the furthest left or left option, the compromise is better hex. Um, so it's been really interesting. I'm, I'm actually, one of the reasons I'm excited for our national conference at the end of the year is, is the free education discussion because, you know, uh, it's been the first year in a while that I haven't just heard the free education is middle-class welfare and then, uh, you know, hex is bad because it limits students' uh, access to unis. Uh, so it's interesting. I'm excited. Um, the uh, JobKeeper stuff that's come out of um, the announcements by the federal government to help sort of protect or uh, assist people whilst the economy is in absolute freefall, Um Where's NUS on this? What have you guys? Uh, what, have, what have you guys said? What's your views on? Because obviously, casuals who have worked uh, for less than twelve months aren't eligible. International students aren't eligible. This is going to impact on a lot of your members. Um, yeah. So we, uh, uh, in terms of actual campaigning, um, we're taking a lot of the, the movement from the union movement as well. Um, there's no point us running a campaign as a sole silo. Like we're unionists, um, we're going to support what you know Vic Trades Hall or the ACTU is doing in their actions. But yeah, you're right. It's so there are 580 on last estimates international students who are still in Australia who haven't had access to any of the government schemes, into including JobKeeper. Uh, and then you have casuals who are working for less than 12 months, um, and that's that's a huge amount of the people that we represent. Uh, so we have been trying to you know obviously get that moved. It's not looking like it's shifting very much because the, jo- the government I don't think really cares. Um, but yeah, I think another thing about JobKeeper that was sort of, it's been pushed a lot in the sector and I'm not really sure how wide else it's gone is they exempted universities from it and they exempted and they you know changed the JobKeeper package to ensure that universities were not covered by this when we have a highly casualised workforce. Um, when we like are losing money because we're losing international students, which is university's sort of foundational income besides public funding. And it's sort of the job keeper package has put universities into this downward spiral of because they can't access it for their tutors. We have campuses like La Trobe who are, you know, there are news stories coming out that they're broke, that, um, you know, there are hundreds if not thousands of staff who are about to be let off. Uh, because of the JobKeeper package. So I think that's also, we're taking sort of a different lens with JobKeeper as well with that. Um, but yeah. I didn't know that. That's, uh, that one slipped by me. There you go. That's amazing. I didn't realise there was an exemption for universities. It's insane. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's meant that like, well, sorry, no, you go. Um, oh, no, I was, I was actually going to sort of ch- just change tack now and just ask some questions a bit more broader about um, the, the union, where it's heading. One of the things that we... St- I think I thought we struggled with on, particularly at NUS conference, when we were debating about resources of the union and where we spent them, um, which required us to sort of ask questions of ourselves, like what type of organisation are we, or do we wish to be? Is it, are we an advocacy organisation? Are we simply an, an awareness raising organisation? Are we an activist organisation? What's what's the future for NUS? How does it? And you know, you and your general secretary are in charge of the funds. Where are you putting your resources to to uh, to win these campaigns? Yeah, I think where we're heading towards is there's been an issue with NUS, um, I think, since it was created of you go to national conference, you have a set of policies, 
um, office bearers could could pick what they want to do out of that and then the next year runs around and it happens all again and there's no continuity of campaigns. And I think, you know, like uh, we've had financial issues um, for quite a while because of ESU because when our members lose funding, we lose funding. Um, so what I would really like to move towards is a more strategic, long-lasting campaign. And, like, we've had it in, in, you know, small shots of the Safety on Campus campaign, which the Women's Department has been running. Um, that's where a lot of people see our value or did see our value is, like, that campaign did so much. Um, now with the changes uh, to Centrelink and, like, New Start, New Allowance and the, the real push um, to raise those to at least a, like the poverty line, um, you're seeing, like, these long-lasting campaigns actually do a bit of action. So I think... I, I think that's where I want to move towards is, is we're, we're advocacy, we're activists, we're all of that, but we need to have that continuity because that's been the biggest issue. It, it, it's, you know, in a job where I'm only here for a year, it's really hard to have that continuity, but I think how we shape that's really important. Um, and I think, I think a, lot of it, a lot of the future for us should be around our membership and our members and looking at, like, how the actual values of the union movement um, and how we, like, give out support is really important as well. Of Like, we have campuses who who need us, who need the resources that we have um, to help them do their job. So I think the next few years we really have to move towards, like, showing our members that we're not just this hack body that you give money to, that we're actually going to go and support you in your hardest times. So we want to, you know, go and connect you with other campuses as well. Um, it, it's a bit of a difficult question because I think everything's sort of been thrown up in the air in the past few few months, um, but I think it wouldn't. I think going towards that direction and showing people the value of us, um, and for for a few years as well, um, should outweigh the negatives. The um, restrictions that have been, uh, I know that it's slowly being eased across the states and territories at varying um, degrees. How are you going to hold your elections, your student elections, uh, in the second half of the year, given that the first elections, from my memory anyway, used to start in August and take you right through to October? How, what's your contingency plans with that? Um, that's a discussion that we're going to have um, probably when we get a better idea of what campuses are doing. Um, we, so our, our delegates for our national conference are, are elected at those elections. Um, and, look, I think we should probably keep a pretty hands-off approach um, and let campuses do what they, they need to do um, with those. And then I think we'll have a discussion probably towards the end of the year about what the contingency plan is. From my understanding, there's not a huge amount of upheaval, like there hasn't been any elections fully cancelled. Um, you know, students on campuses will still get the right to vote uh, for their representatives at some point. I think it's just I, the thing with corona is that, is that you think it's going one way, or you think, you know, a policy decision or a response is going one way and then it completely goes the other. So I don't think we're, we want to make any concrete plans before we get the final, this is what's happening. Yeah. I mean, tough question and always a tough answer as well. Um, but yeah. it was something that jogged my mind as I was preparing the questions this week. I thought, shit, you've got elections coming up. How are you going to do that? But um, uh, I'm sure you'll work out ways to get around the challenges that have been presented to you by uh, Corona. Um, I want to turn our attention just to discuss um, what's happening over in the United States. So obviously we're watching the events unfold there at, uh, at the moment. Um, and aside from feeling somewhat helpless to support um, uh, folks over in the US, um, we all may be sort of going through our own internal 
reflections about both as individuals and as citizens of this nation of ours uh, and what we've done in the fight against uh, racial injustice. What are the conversations being had right now inside the student movement? I think it's every meeting I've started this week has been like, so we didn't acknowledge when a country and then after the acknowledgement of country, it was like, well, we have to understand also the context of in which we're in right now of like these, these protests in America, you know, we can't really look at America and, and turn our back on what's happening in our own country. Um, and I think a lot of the discussion is, you know, absolute solidarity. I don't think there's anyone who, who doesn't support these protests and, and who isn't, because I think I actually saw something really interesting about the protests and young people, um, the, the Zoomers, is that we don't get our news and we don't get the way that we interact with things like what's happening in Minnesota and around the country from Channel 9 or Channel 7. We get it from people on the front lines of the protests, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. So we're getting a very, like, raw, unfiltered, this is what's happening. Mm. Um, so I think there's a, there's a huge amount of, like, solidarity with, with the people uh, in the U.S., but a lot of the conversation, if not all of the conversation, is flipped to Australia and what we're doing about racial injustice here. And I think it's given a lot of people some time to think about how we're engaging with Indigenous people, how we're engaging with Indigenous students. I think it, it shows a lot that four days after this protest started, that kid had his face slammed into the pavement in Sydney. Um, and that sort of where we're moving towards is it's like it's not it's not enough to show up to the the rallies on January 26th. It's not enough to you know to to share like a, a little bit um, of stuff about Indigenous uh, Australians. It's like how are we actively um, engaging with these groups. Do we how like reconciliation? Like how are we actually changing the structures of our union to be more um, open to Indigenous Australians? Because um, yeah, the fight of, like the fight for racial justice here is just as I think on the back foot as in other places as well. Um, so, look, we're running a couple of rallies over the weekend um, in, in regional centres regarding it, uh, Black Lives Matter and Indigenous Australians, but I think that's something that I think is going to... I think this should, and I think the student movement does want this to be a trigger for how we look at Australian deaths in custody and police brutality. Uh, the makeup of the student leadership in the 1990s was very white uh, and very middle class. Uh, in fact, I think if you moved further to the left on the political spectrum amongst um, my uh, comrades in the student movement, uh, the more left you were, probably the more wealthier you were. I think it's half the trots, their parents worked for BHP and Rio Tinto. Um, but and certainly notwithstanding uh, the great commitment and activism from our international students uh, to the movement, but by and large, the leadership was white and middle class What's the demographics now like of people who are getting involved in student activism and taking on leadership roles? Does it truly reflect the student population? Look, I don't, I don't think so. I think this is one of the, it should be the shame of the student movement is that we have people of colour um, have a really, there's a really high burnout rate um, of, of people of colour, especially in, in student of colour activism, um, which means that, there's not a huge amount of of, of, pe- of those people going to leadership positions. Like we've gone from last year, the president and general secretary at NUS were both people of colour. This year we're both white. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's pretty overwhelming when you're going to a national conference about 
about it. I think what we need, what we what we should be doing, and why it's important to have you know years where and why we should be pushing for years where there there are more people of color in leadership is that when you look at a group who you look up to, and when you look at a group of leaders in the student movement, and you don't see yourself, if you don't see um, someone who has has struggled in the same in the same ways as you, then you're probably going to turn away from that and be like, well, actually. Hmm don't really want to do this anymore. Uh, I think we've gotten better at engaging people of colour, but I think, and that a lot of that is like the the engagement, international students and activism, but also um, the creation of like people of colour and ethnocultural departments within student unions. But I think it's it's really something that we haven't worked on very well. And I think it, it's going to take, how we're going to change it is it's going to take white people within the student movement to like reach their hand out to people of colour being like, I'm going to upskill you in this in this really niche student politics thing, like negotiations of like here's how you do something because normally when we're looking at the person who we upskill for that for that factionally or within the student movement, it's 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 mostly like just a white person to do that. So I think it's just understanding and and sort of forcing the upskill a little bit is how we would we, we would help and also like combating our own racism. Like I think a lot of student activists, because we're we go in being like we're anti-racist, we're you know anti-homo, like we're we're not homophobic. Um, there are a lot of things that we do that we don't realise are racist, or at least a microaggression for racism. And if we're not willing to go like, okay, what I just said was really problematic, and I'm very sorry, and I want to learn from this. If you're too scared to say, oh, I, I have an issue with this, then you're not going to be able to fix it, and people of colour are just going to turn away. Mm. So it's, a, it's going to be a lot of work. It's a long journey. Yeah. Um, we're at 51 minutes and uh, I would get, uh, I would get uh, um, a, an absolute barrage of abusive messages from all of my um, student hack friends. I now didn't move to the insider questions of uh, student, student politics. So if you weren't involved in student politics, you'd probably find the rest of this quite boring. But to begin... Can list me all the factions that are now existing in student politics that would uh, be represented on the floor of the national conference, just so I can get, I need to get an update here. I need to understand who's who in the zoo these days. You don't need to give me numbers on floor and that kind of stuff. Although if you want to, you're more than welcome to, but I just need to know who's who in the zoo these days. Who's around? Um, So you have your, your consistent three, uh, um, which is uh, Social Alternative, who are our favourite Trotskyists, uh, who um, they're, they're still around. Um, then you have uh, National Labour Students, which is uh, the Labour Left, uh, who uh, I'm, I'm a part of National Labour Students. It's very public. I'm not um, going to pretend I'm not. Uh, and then we have Student Unity, which is the, the Labour Right. Okay. Uh, and then, so I'm just going to pause you there. A- just uh, so, sorry, Molly. I'm just going to yeah. pause you for a second, just to give people an update on that. So. Uh, the National Labour Students, NLS, right? So you've gone through yep. a couple of name changes because back in the early days you were Knowles. So it's just good for some of the Knowles people to remember that's that's the old Knowles crew, right? Yeah, so Knowles and ALS, which was um, – there was there was a, a split within the left. Um, oh, was that that conference? Two groups. We moved. Yep. Uh, um, I, I had someone sit down and talk, talk, tell me about that the, uh, a couple of years ago and I was like, oofed. Um they merged in 2006 to create National Labour Students, uh-huh. uh, and we've been we've been here ever since. Right. Um, Socialist yeah. Alternative that used to be Left Alliance. Is that right? 
Because social Sorry, alternative was social. not around. They were the trots, but with it, trots were called left alliance in, in our generation. So I'm assuming social alternative have gone through a name change as well by the sounds of it. Yeah. From my understanding, it was um, the members of social alternative now were kicked out of a, like an international socialist organisation and were barred for life or something because if, if anyone's talked to them, uh, you can see why. Um, but um, because of that, they created the social alternative organisation uh, and then sort of um, purged out the rest of the Trotskyists who weren't insult. They don't really exist anymore. There was a time where, you know, we had many more factions on conference floor. Mm-hmm. Um, but now it's, it's, it's sort of the big three. And then um, the fourth one is the, in, the National Independents, which are, a, which are a faction of independents. Some of them are members of the Labor Party. Some of them are just random students, um, have now merged with the grassroots, which are more greensy the anarchist groups to make the grassroots independence. Ah. So there's now those four. So I wonder if the grassroots were the old uh, NAL, non-aligned left, which is the old Van Batam crew, because independents were around in our day as well, but they were yeah. m- mostly centred out of WA, SA and uh, Deakin in Victoria. Yeah, and that's where a lot merged. of the- That's bizarre. Yeah, yeah it's, it's been it, – it, they only merged a couple of years ago. Ah. Um, yeah. Okay. And anyone else? Uh, no, just uh, the liberals. The liberals show up and then leave. Uh, like they're not an active part of conference floor. I think the first time uh, in my time, I've only seen them active at NUS twice, uh, 2017 and last year. Um, but it depends on how they go on student unions. Uh, they, they don't think NUS should exist. They don't really see the the worth in engaging with it. I know in the past the Liberals saw the worth of engaging in NUS, yelling at Labor hacks. Um, but yeah, they're not they're not really quite involved anymore. There are like subgroups um, or like their own contingents that come in, like the Australian Union of Jewish Students um, comes in and has a small contingent sometimes, or at least has a representative. Um, but, yeah, that's sort of the factional lay of the land. Interesting. So the internal divide in the Liberal Students, the Australian Liberal Students Federation always was, yes, between the Liberal Students that thought that um, we're best staying involved in student um, in the student movement to try and quell some of the more radical ideas of student unionism and then there was ones that wanted to tear the whole place down. So those were the ones that would vote with the trots on stuff because the trots would put up the most incredibly insane pieces of policy at conference and, that, and, the, and the libs would vote for it. Um, and in fact, would make amendments to some of the policies and add extra zeros onto the budget just to completely, you know, cripple the union. Whereas there was some other, um, more of the Melbourne Uni strand of um, liberal students that were a little bit more sensible. That's funny. Looks, that was my follow-up question after that was in how badly behaved are the liberal students at conference these days? But if they're not turning up, then they can't be badly oh. behaved. Look, when they do show up, they are quite badly behaved. Um, are we talking or, cat food in the dryers of the halls of residence kind of badly behaved? Okay, yeah, not that bad. Uh-huh. But, um, look, I wouldn't even say that they're necessarily badly behaved. It's just, you know, they'll come up and they'll say something really controversial or they'll, they'll say something that they know will get under the skins of everyone and then every, it, the entire conference floor just erupts. Uh-huh. It's, it's mostly socialist alternative uh, with, you know, the chance of racist, sexist, anti-queer liberals are not welcome here, which which bangs, um, <laughs> start erupting into the room and the liberal on the lectern is just like, of course you would, you rabid dogs. Yeah. Um, good. So, you know, when they do show up, they do have a bit of fun. Okay. That leads me on to my next question. This is very good though. You says you're getting me good segues here. Uh, conference chance. Is that still a thing? Obviously it is by the sounds of it. 
Who's got the best? Uh, yes. Who's got? Who, who can bring it? Who's got the best A game when it comes to conference chance? Look, it. I'm. I'm gonna. I'm gonna do it. I. I think Student Unity, when I started, had some pretty excellent chance. Uh, you know, the the hex is best. Um, you know, it was it was quite loud and took over the room. Right now, Student Unity is quoting uh, videos on the internet. So I think that's really like fallen down a bit. And right. uh, I, I have a talk um, to Unity at conference about like, hey, let's bring back some good ones. Um, good. Salts are pretty good with them because they have the really aggressive uh, sort of, you know, political chanting. Um, NLS sort of stays out of it a little bit of like, you know, we'll, we'll chant when needed, but we don't want to shut down conference war completely with a good chant. Um, but, yeah, right. I love a good conference chant. Good. Second question then on conference, uh, conference swag, and in particular the uh, various student groupings T-shirts, is that still a thing? Yes, that is still a thing, uh, and that is uh, my favourite thing about conference <laughs> is seeing what what little petty jab um, someone's going to put on their T-shirt this year. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, NLS and Unity have, like, we've consistently had our shirts. Um, the, the, the trots do not. They do not do shirts, which is unfortunate because I think they'd have some funny ones. Yeah. Um, they could really, really do a good shirt. Um, and then the grassroots have started doing their their shirts, but I, I love the shirts. I love I love the fighting to, like, decide what's going to be on the shirt. I love the, like, if you do something really, like, particular, the other factions finding you on the first day and ripping your hair apart and seeing the back of your shirt. Um, <laughs> the best part <laughs> that's true you're reminding me yes that the internal deliberations about what goes on the shirt in terms of the slogan under the under your um, factions banner was intense sometimes greater than who actually was going to become the candidate for various national office bearer positions oh the most some of the most vicious fights i've seen i mean what's going to be on the shirt this year um so what's going to what's going to be on the shirt <laughs> yeah. this year because you have a lot of sway in this i would assume i i don't i it's 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 up to it's up to the other members of NLS. Like I'm just, I'm do, just. Do they get a vote? They just pre- yes. Um, everyone Classic. with us gets a vote. Um, look, we had a really good shirt last year, so we have to sort of either up the game a little bit or just completely move in a different direction. So it's going to be a lot of internal debate. Um, I don't necessarily want to be a part of it because I just think that I it would just get very spicy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, business committee is it still a thing? Bizcom is still a thing, but we have, um, for, for, for your listeners who know what happens on business committee uh, and the, the fighting, um, we have done a lot of work to stop the fighting. We have like a six foot seven security guard named Tiny uh, who does not <laughs> let this shit happen anymore. Um, last year we did get a table broken, but that was an accident, so... so. Yeah, we, 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 don't, we don't do the fighting. We do still eat paper. That is the question I get the most from older hacks is, yes, we still eat that paper. Ah, um, I just put it in my pocket. we don't want being talked about. Yes, I just put it in my pocket. No, I got to the point where people were going into people's pockets to try and get that motion. It's like you eat it or you, you burn it, but. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. take, I like that. That's taking it to a new level. That's very good. Yeah. Um, uh, then, speaking of um, motions coming to business committee, they are often delivered to that table by someone called a runner. So, my question is, when you appoint a first-year delegate to be a runner on conference floor, do they react like they've just been given a million dollars and it's the greatest responsibility in their life? Uh, yeah, I reckon for the first motion. Uh, also, I feel really bad for your listeners who don't know what we're talking about uh, they'll right be, now. But they've look, stopped, they stopped listening hours ago. Don't worry about it. We're fine. Keep going. <laughs> 
Um, look, they're welcome to come to a national conference if they please. Um, but uh, yes, uh, for the first three motions, the runner is very, very excited. And then it gets to the point where the cog table is going, run this over to student unity right fucking now. Yeah. Sorry, part of my language. Yeah, okay. and, you can fucking um, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Then, um, yeah, then the, the, the shine sort of wears off. Fair and enough. it just becomes whoever can walk. <laughs> right. Because then my flip question to that is when you appoint a delegate that's had that's attended several conferences uh, and you ask them to be a runner on the floor, does it look like you've just shat in their mouth? Because they're saying, really? Sorry, pardon? I was going to say, if uh, <laughs> when you appoint a delegate uh, that has attended several conferences and you ask them to be a runner, does it look, does it, the look on their face, does it appear like you've just defecated in their mouth because they're like, really, you're giving me this job? <laughs> look, yeah, but where, where I'm at right now is uh, where, where I'm at in my my take is our uh, cop it. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I think that's a lot of, a lot of NatCon is like, yeah, the jobs suck, but, but look, being the run is actually quite fun. You get to banter with the other factions, cog tables. Um, and I think it gets to the point by like the Wednesday of conference where our appointed runner doesn't exist anymore. And he just pointing at random people being like, give this paper the socialist alternative now. <laughs> um, so it's a huge yeah. responsibility. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you right now, one of the best runners for student unity ever absolutely efficient was the now member uh in the south australian uh actually i bloody forgot what seat she's got amanda rishworth what seat she got these days she's a member for oh that's terrible oh oh that's terrible i'll have to, <laughs> I'll have to google it anyway amanda rishworth an excellent runner very very effective oh yeah look i think when we find the person who can do it really well and, and doesn't want to be sitting around then it becomes a lot better of a job look i i i've enjoyed everything i've ever done on conference floor because i really like drama uh so it's just you know the the ability to run the the hex's best motion to the trots or the free ed motion to student unity or something like that is so much fun um so yeah that's good uh second last question what's happening with edcon this year because it's a rite of passage and obviously um things are a bit different right now Look, I'm really sad about this, but we can't have a physical EdCon. Um, we sort of realised that when the travel ban was put in. Uh, so we're doing a Zoom con or um, an online conference in, in some respects to because there's, there's so much happening in higher education that it would be religion of us to not at least talk in the middle of the year about the, the state of higher ed and, and bring out, like, you know, take out the factional and the... the the bantering and the beef out of EdCon and actually talk about what it's supposed to be there for. Um, so that is going to be online. We're trying to figure that out now. Right now, NatCon should be fine if anyone's wondering. <laughs> we're, we're, we're really, good, fingers good. crossed. You heard it here first, folks. the NatCon happen. Yeah, because I just don't want to... Uh, I don't want to miss my, my, my swan song of student politics. Uh, so I will, I will personally fight the coronavirus uh, if that affects it. <laughs> and my last question, and this is the toughest one, yeah. It's June. NUS conference is scheduled for early December. Have you signed your one-for-one one deal with Student Unity? Not yet. Uh, we, uh, we have not started. <laughs> so we have not started um, thinking about that right now. Right. <laughs> it's been a very busy year. It's been a very, very busy year. Lock that in. Just do yourself a favour. What? They're like, what, what are they like? They must be close to 50% of the floor. You guys would be 35. Just lock it in. Just wrap it up. <laughs> Just take the floor. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll take that to I'll take that to student unity. Very good. Um, Very we'll good. have to go to court 
first. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, Molly, it has been fantastic having you on the show this week. Uh, I can't believe that in the four years of doing political podcasts that I had never considered inviting the National Union Students President on after all the years I've been involved in student politics. But I've really enjoyed this. This has been great. Yeah, no, good. If you invite me on next year, I can be uh, the unabashed gossip. Um, That's odd. Next year, I'm, inv- I'm inviting you on uh, literally the day after NUS conference and you can tell me exactly what happened, blow by blow. Maybe Beautiful. we could do a socially democratic podcast live from conference floor. Oh, I think it'd be a bit muffled by yelling, but we'll see what we can do. Yeah, I could do an up-to-date blow-by-blow account of what's going on on the floor. It'd be a fascinating yeah. podcast. That would have to start at three in the morning, no doubt, but it would be a fascinating podcast nonetheless. Yeah. Molly, I wish you the best of luck for the rest of this year uh, and uh, strength to your arm and the broader student movement in all of your battles. Um, and uh, thanks very much for your time today. Yeah, too easy. Yeah.